When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we challenge the operating systems underlying our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for staying coherent and connected in a world seemingly engineered to keep us confused and alone. We are neither. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, advocate for sacred economics and the author of Climate Change, a new story, Charles Eisenstein. So there's like a metaphysical assumption underneath science that is not questioned or even questionable from within science, which is that everything is quantifiable. That goes back to Galileo, actually, and this whole philosophical tradition that if it's real, you can measure it. And if it's not measurable, then it's just airy-fairy philosophizing. Charles will be engaging with me on how to rescale our economy and expectations toward a sustainable future. It's time to rise to the occasion of our own rescue. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Team Human is partnering with Extinction Rebellion for the International Rebellion to Tell the Truth About Climate Change on October 7th worldwide. You can find out more at teamhuman.fm slash XR. That's the International Rebellion to Tell the Truth About Climate Change on October 7th. Telling the truth is the first step. So come to Amsterdam, Berlin, Toronto, Montreal, New York, Paris, London, Melbourne, and most other great cities to demand that our leaders begin telling the truth. I will be there in one of those cities on October 7th at the Rebels Without Borders Global Action Kickoff. But there's plenty more, including the XR Action Spotlight, October 14th to 21st, focusing on the intersection of immigration, climate, and indigenous resistance. Find out more at teamhuman.fm slash XR. And while you're at teamhuman.fm, you can click on support to join Patreon, our sole platform, and support this show. 
We've got a special show for you this week. Two events we recorded at a conference I attended last month in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. It was the 75th anniversary of the original Bretton Woods conference that was held there just after World War II. That's the conference, if you remember your history books, that's where the global leaders got together and pretty much invented the world economic system for better and for worse. It's where they figured out everything and negotiated the U.S. dollar becoming the global reserve currency, the establishment of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. This is where Lord Keynes, Keynes himself, he was in attendance, and he would probably consider it the big collapse of all his ideas. He pretty much lost every argument. And he'd argue that that's where we pretty much went in the wrong direction, launching the extractive growth-based economy that we're suffering with today. Well, this 75th anniversary of Bretton Woods, it was meant as something of a reboot of the global economy along different lines. I mean, they did invite the real machers, as my grandma would put it, of the Economy. You know, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers was there, the former head of the IMF, the head of the World Bank, as well as thinkers and activists and change agents from the more circular, regenerative economy. People like me or Rayanne Eisler, who wrote uh, Chalice and the Blade. Um, there was someone there from the Tenure Project, which we actually should have them on. They, it's an organization to help indigenous people around the world reclaim their lands. Uh, Boniface Mwangi was there, the activist from Kenya who's been shot and, and jailed. Um, Holochain was there, uh, Art Brock, who was on this show. There were a lot of blockchain saves the world people, but they were really balanced out by smart people and activists and social change agents who know that technology isn't the solution for everything. These were smart capable people with really good intentions and uh, making some really uh, actionable uh, plans, I think. I was the last speaker there of this three-day conference, but I still felt the need to fire some holes in some of the underlying logic of the proceedings. That's kind of just what I can't help but do. So in lieu of my weekly monologue, we're going to play for you uh, most of my closing keynote from Bretton Woods 75. And then we'll be back with a conversation I had at that very conference alone in a back room with philosopher Charles Eisenstein. I was really, you know, thinking about it, I was dragged kicking and screaming into the whole digital economy thing, right? I was an early kind of psychedelic cyberpunk rave kid who loved the, you know, quantum physics, chaos, math, fantasy, role-playing, you know, craziness of the early internet. But I was one of the only people who had written books about the emerging cyberculture in the 90s. So when the New York Times needed someone to write an op-ed, about the AOL Time Warner merger, they turned to me. So I wrote the truth of what I saw, which was that AOL had reached its peak of subscribers, was cashing in its inflated chips to buy a real company, and this meant we were at the beginning of the dot-com bust. And the New York Times called back and said, we can't publish this. Everyone in the business page says that this is fucking insane. You know, what are you saying? That this is, this is supposed to be the synergy of old media and new in the beginning. It's like, dude, you don't see it. You don't see it. Don't you understand game theory or anything? Don't you see? 
So I published it in The Guardian, and of course I turned out to be right. Um, <laughs> And then from then on, uh, businesses and companies, they would always call me to like be some kind of digital predictor, prognosticator, and they started calling me a futurist, even though I hate futurists. I'm a propagandist, I'm not a futurist, um, right? I speak the future I want to convince people to have. So I had gotten then, and uh, uh, one of the talks I was invited to do, which I actually thought was gonna be something like this, to talk about the digital future to people who were involved in money, um, I was in the green room waiting to go on, and instead of bringing me on stage, they brought these five guys into the green room with me, and they sat around this little table, and that was the talk. There was no talk. It was them asking me things like, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know, augmented reality or virtual reality, like they're gonna bet on which future I say. Then finally they got around to things like New Zealand or Alaska. <laughs> which was all they really cared about, right? They came to a media theorist, a psychedelic media theorist, for advice on where to put their doomsday bunkers, right? And the question they finally got to, that we spent almost an hour on, was how do I maintain control of my security force after my money is worthless? Get it, right? Like shock collars, or I'm the only one who knows the combination to the food. I mean, I told them pay for their security forces, kids bought mitzvahs now, right? Um, <laughs> They didn't like that. But, but the, the shock to me was that these are the winners of the digital economy, right? These are the richest people, the most powerful people in the world, yet they feel utterly powerless to influence the future, that the best they can do is, is kind of pedal to the metal and basically try to earn enough money to insulate themselves from the reality they're creating by earning money in that way, right? <laughs> So what I wanted to figure out was how had the digital future, which was about the wildest possibilities of the human imagination, become about um, survival and separation. And what I realized was that the, the, the wonderful open peer-to-peer -peer possibility uh, really was surrendered to the agenda of Wired Magazine. You know, there was a few problems with the internet. The biggest problem was in 1994, they found out the average internet connected home was watching nine hours less commercial television a week. So the war was on. But Wired Magazine came and said, don't worry, this weird, unpredictable quantum physics rave culture that you think is coming, it won't. That instead, the internet will be the salvation of the NASDAQ stock exchange. And they published a cover and a book called The Long Boom, which argued that thanks to the internet, the economy will expand exponentially uninterrupted forever. This was the new paradigm that even Alan Greenspan finally agreed with. Right, so what happened was the agenda then of the internet changed from uh, uh, creating new possibilities to predicting the future. It was about speculation. And when you want to predict the future, what do you want the future to be? Predictable, right? So all the technologies that we used ended up instead of fostering creativity and weirdness, it was about, about channeling people towards the most predictable outcomes, right? And all this, all this is because 
our digital companies are working on an obsolete economic operating system, right? We're trying to run a 21st century digital economy on a 13th century economic operating system. And if you've read Bernard, you, you basically know the story that we had a, the beginnings of a peer-to-peer -peer economy in the late Middle Ages after the Crusades, after we opened up all the trade routes, we copied from the Moors, we copied the bazaar and called it the market. People would come to market and trade their goods that use local currencies that were issued in the morning, worth nothing by the end of the day, totally optimized for the velocity of transactions between people, and we had small businesses. The problem was, as people got wealthy, the burghers, the middle class, later called the bourgeois, as they rose, the aristocracy was getting relatively poorer. So what did they do? They made small business illegal. You can't have a small business, now you had to have a chartered monopoly. So instead of making shoes and creating value and trading that value, now you had to go be an employee for His Majesty's Royal Shoe Company. Instead of selling the value you created, now you sold your time. That's when we put the clock on the tower in the middle of the village to say, it's all fair, an hour is an hour. But who sells their time? Slaves sell their time. Indentured servants sell their time. So we were disconnected from the value we create. Second, of course, we made all local currencies illegal at sword point, right? This wasn't some natural evolution of business to support corporations, no. Local currencies were made illegal and fiat currencies, central currencies where you had to borrow money from the central treasury at interest, Right, was the only money you were allowed to use if you wanted to transact. So the rich found a way to get rich by being rich. Right? And the problem, of course, is when you have interest embedded in your currency, you have an economy that has to grow by its very nature. In order for it to work, it has to grow. That works well as long as you have brown people to enslave and take their stuff in other continents with your colonial European powers. It stops working when those people start fighting back. It worked right until the end of World War II. And then what happened? Vannevar Bush writes this great essay, which is basically a letter to Eisenhower saying, all these technologies that we developed for war, all that crypto and stuff, we can actually use it to increase the surface area on the market. Even though there's no more physical territory to colonize, now we can colonize human memory, human attention, human awareness. And we ended up taking the agenda of colonialism and enacting it on ourselves. Right? There is an anti-human bias embedded in corporatism and central currency. Right? It's how we got mass production, which we're told in school mass production was so we can make more goods in less time. No, mass production was so that I wouldn't have to hire a skilled shoemaker in my shoe company. I don't want to hire a skilled shoemaker. He's going to want 30 bucks an hour. I want to go to the Home Depot parking lot and get some you know, uh, undocumented alien, bring them in, train them in 15 minutes to put one nail in one part of a shoe and pass it on to the next guy. Right? So mass production was about alienating the worker from the value they were creating. Then we needed a way to get people to buy these plain brown boxed goods instead of the goods they used to buy from their own neighbors. Right? If Ron was the, the oat miller in my town and I used to buy all my oats from him, now I'm supposed to buy it from a plain brown box that's landing in the, in the store? What do they do? Well, mass marketing. Right? The, put a Quaker on that box so I can have a relationship with a Quaker instead of with Ron. Actually, Ron, I don't know what your religion is. Quakers seem good, though. Right? <laughs> they, they talk, they have meetings, they're nice, the guy had a big mole on it. Right? But in case I didn't know who that Quaker was, what did we get so I would have a pre-existing relationship with that Quaker when his box came to town? Mass media. 
Right? When I was raised, I thought mass media was so that you know, Bing Crosby and Lucille Ball could reach the whole nation with their comedy and music. No, mass media was so that I would have a relationship with the brand mythology of that Quaker before it got here. Right? So mass production disconnects the worker from the value they create. Mass marketing disconnects the producer from the consumer. And mass media disconnects the consumers from one another. Right? Think about any commercial, a commercial for blue jeans, say. What is the blue jeans commercial saying? Wear these jeans and you will get laid. <laughs> who is that commercial for? Me when I'm sitting next to my girlfriend on the couch, the girl who I already get laid with? No, it's for someone who's on the couch alone not getting laid. Right, that's why television went from a family activity. It's true, that's the function of TV, alienate and isolate. So that we need products to stand in for those human relationships. So then I thought, as a TV person who understood all this, when the internet came, yay, we're gonna reconnect. Now the screens, instead of just giving us propaganda and isolating us, we're gonna reach through the screens and touch other people and connect. I'm gonna have conversations with kids in Israel and, and Tokyo and mean people and other places and we're all gonna kumbaya together. But no, instead what we did was we enacted the sort of Vannevar Bush through wired capitalist reification or we doubled down on extractive corporate capitalism. Right? We started to call the internet an attention economy. It's a really awful thing. An attention economy was measured. You remember the metric for the attention economy was eyeball hours. Isn't that spooky? I, how many hours does a human eyeball land on the screen? And the metric we were trying to increase, the quality was called stickiness. Right? So the web was like flypaper. So you get your eyes stuck on this thing. Right? And we still, and we have a lab at Stanford. One of the most popular labs is called Captology. If you're a computer scientist or developer, you go through Captology where you learn how do we take the algorithms from slot machines and embed them in people's news feeds in order to addict them to media. Right? That's where the streak feature of Snapchat and all these things come from. And now they're all, they're all so sorry. You know, now they're doing humane technology, right? which is the same thing. But we're just going to take the same behavioral economics methods and use it to get people to do stuff that's good for them. But what they don't understand is the whole dynamic is using technology to do something to people rather than providing technology for people to do things. People mean to connect with one another through the internet, but you can't actually connect to other people through the internet. You cannot connect to other people. You can connect to other people's data, but not to other people. Even if you're using Skype, say, you're using Skype, when you're using Skype and you talk to another person and they agree with you, they agree with you, and you click off, your body doesn't know they agreed with you. Why? Because no matter how good the resolution is, you can't see their pupils are getting bigger or smaller as you speak. You can't see the micro-motions of their head, the flushing of their face. You can't sync up your breathing, so you can't establish rapport. So the mirror neurons never fire, the oxytocin doesn't go through your bloodstream. You hear the words, they agreed with you, but your body says, but did they agree with me? And then what happens? Do you know intrinsically, instinctually, oh, that's because I'm using a digital medium that doesn't provide that fidelity? No. What you think instinctually is, I don't trust that person. They say they're agreeing with me, but I don't really feel it. So we engender distrust. And then that feeds back into all the people who say, oh, well, human beings are the problem and technology is the solution because people can't be trusted. The more we use this stuff, the less we engage, the less rapport we have with other people, the more we want to make technologies that then manipulate other people. So we end up with Facebook. 
right? Which Facebook, which pretends it's a social medium, but what is Facebook? Facebook is a platform that uses your past data to put you in a statistical bucket and then try to get you to behave more true to that statistic. Right, so if they know with 80% accuracy that you're gonna go on a diet in the next two months, what's gonna happen? Your news feed's gonna start to have articles about, oh, look at this fat person that died. Look what happens when you have too much cholesterol in your blood, right? Now, what are they doing? Are they trying to sell me the products of a particular sponsor? No, what they're trying to do is to get that 80% accuracy up to 90% or 95% by acting on the 20% of misbehaviors, the 20% of humans who were going to engage in some unique, anomalous, strange, creative alternative outcome. Get those 20 down to 10 or down to five to make what? To make the population more predictable. But what happens when you take the 20%, your Pareto principle, 20% of creative people and whittle them down? You end up with less new outcomes, less new strategies. It's the exact opposite strategy of a world trying to come up with solutions to climate change. What we're doing with our technology is auto-tuning humanity. That's what we're doing. I mean, what would happen to James Brown today? What is it when he's reaching up to a note or coming down in over a note? That is what I call soul, right? Soul, there's no place for soul. What does the computer consider soul? Noise. How do they try to make an AI look more human? They add randomness to it. They have it do some random things so it, so it looks more human. To the digital media environment, humanity is randomness, is noise. Whereas I'm concerned that soul, that's the signal. That's all we've got. That's the actual weird, squishy human place. That's what makes us different from the algorithms. We're never gonna be as quantized as a program because we've got this other weird David Lynchy, unresolved, ambiguous thing going on, right? But so when we talk about nature and women as externalities, that's what they mean. Nature and women, they're weird, they're wet, they're confusing, they're alive, they're unpredictable. Just auto-tune them. Right, so technology, the, the, the idea that we're gonna somehow solve these problems with technology is, it, it could be well-meaning, but it's, it's misinformed. Right? We, it's because of the stories we tell ourselves about technology, like the, the Jefferson and the dumbwaiter. I was told that the dumbwaiter was there so that the slaves wouldn't have to carry all the food up the stairs. No, the dumbwaiter was there so Thomas Jefferson and his dinner guests wouldn't have to see the slaves that were bringing up all the food. It was to turn it into a kind of a, a Star Trek replicator that magically food appears. It was to externalize the pain and suffering that went into what we do. And no matter how well-meaning a new developer is when they come into this system, they can't help but adopt this paradigm. I remember when I saw uh, my friend Evan Williams, a founder of Twitter, on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with the number 4.3 billion under his face, which was how much he made the morning of the IPO. And part of me thought, oh cool, I have a billionaire friend. But the other part of me thought, oh my god, this guy is fucked, right? <laughs> They gave him $4.3 billion, so you can't run Twitter anymore. You're gonna have to pivot this company towards something else. When Twitter was making $2 billion a year off a 140 character messaging app, Wall Street said it was an abject failure. Why? Because it stopped around $2 billion. Can you imagine calling your grandma saying, I make about $2 billion a year, but it's a failure, right? Off a messaging app, for God's sake. That should be good. You should be able to stop there and say, two billion a year is a good sustainable future for this app. But no, we had to pivot. 
So now we're in this world where we're allowed to solve any problem we want with technology as long as we also, as a side effect, make a couple of billion dollars in the process. And the problem is it always fails, right? Because you can't keep growing forever. Eventually, even the biggest growing company turns into something else. They turn into a bank. Google became Alphabet, which is a bank. It's a holding company. It's the Jack Welch model. When he found out that we, I make less money making and selling a washing machine to someone than I do lending them the money they need to buy the washing machine. So fuck it, let's sell all the productive industries of GE and let's become a bank, which worked really well until around 2007 and they weren't really a bank, so oops. But it, it, it almost always fails. And even the well-meaning people who do it, they, they take all this money and they say, oh, well, now that I have $99 billion, I'm going to give back 99% of it. Right? So you've taken all this money out of the economy. I'm just going to shove it in where I think it goes. And then I'm the libertarian here who thinks that I can somehow centrally plan. I'm going to, like, like uh, Gates Foundation, God bless them, they mean well, but... What does Gates Foundation do? Oh, we want to solve malaria, you know? And on our computers, we figured out that malaria is coming from mosquitoes. Oh, and we can get rid of mosquitoes by putting mosquito nets on. So we're going to send mosquito nets to everybody in Africa. Right? They send mosquito nets, and they have little anti-mosquito repellents and off on there or whatever. People look at the nets, and they think, shit, we could use this for fishing. So they go in. They start fishing with the mosquito nets. They poisoned the water. They killed all the fish. Oops. Right? So you can't just put it back in. It's way better not to take all the money out of circulation in the first place. But what's happened is our digital... We're not allowed to do that. Why? Because once you take the money, it's basically like a bar or restaurant taking money from the mob. Right? Your, your business is no longer itself. Your business is the medium, not the message. It's the ground, not the figure. Your business is serving the bank, not the bank serving the business. So, so the company becomes the medium, just like human beings have become the medium for digital companies. Companies are the medium for the banks. But banks have become the medium for uh, extractive uh, digital abstract finance. But the New York Stock Exchange was purchased by its own derivatives exchange. Do you understand what that means? The stock market, which is already an abstraction of the market, which is already an abstraction of, of a gift economy, has been consumed by its own abstraction. <laughs> right? Finance has colonized itself. It's funny. This is why we need, I think, we need uh, uh, not another revolution digital revolution, digital destruction. What we need instead is a renaissance. A renaissance is a rebirth of old ideas in a new context. What we get, it's funny, Marshall McLuhan said, digital would retrieve the medieval. Digital retrieves the medieval. And what he was looking at, I mean, you've got to read his stuff in the Gutenberg galaxy, and you look at, you know, the printing press came along and changed and, and regimented society in all sorts of ways, and two-column accounting and all the sort of corporatism that we're talking about. But now that digital would retrieve what got repressed in the last renaissance, which was all of those peer-to-peer -peer mechanisms, which was the female, which was um, indigenous peoples and all. So when you retrieve the the social and economic mechanisms of medievalism. What do you retrieve? Well, you can retrieve a, a, a peer-to-peer -peer economy. It was actually, it was the, the Catholic popes that came up with something called distributism. Because right after Marx, they were asked, who do you agree with? Do you agree with Marx or do you agree with the capitalists? And the Catholic Church went and said, well, people are allowed to make money and all that, but 
the worker should also have, have the rights to something. So what, what the Catholic priest came up with was, was distributism, which, which it said, rather than like socialism, rather than redistributing the spoils of capitalism after the fact, let's pre-distribute the means of production before the fact. So workers own the tools of production. Right? And that's where we see the beginnings of, of platform cooperatives and worker ownership and what, is, and, and what that looks like, where you optimize an economy not for growth, but for flow, right? Not for the extraction of value and its storage in share prices, but for the velocity of money, the velocity of transactions. How do I earn $1 10 times rather than $10 once? And what does that look like? So, it's interesting, I've been listening to the proposals in my last seven minutes, I'll make some. There's like two kinds of proposals and whichever kind you make, you get criticized. You make a big proposal, people say, well, yeah, but how does that work on the ground? You make an on the ground proposal and people say, well, how does that scale to the whole thing? <laughs> All right, fine, then let's just die, right? <laughs> so the one thing I liked about uh, Larry Summers' talk is that there's something already in place. That's all that matters, what he said. There's something already there, right? You can't build a new economy ex nihilo, right? Just out of nothing, right? Yeah, it would be great. We could get an island and start from scratch, but you never get that clean beginning, right? Even in your own life, we're already fucked up, right? You gotta do the ninth step, you know? So here's, here's 10 principles that I've been working on. One, and businesses hate to hear this, but make everyone rich. It's so easy, right? But companies have the Walmart idea, right? That you go into a community, undersell everybody to put everybody outside of business so you become the, not only the sole sales retail place, but the sole employer, right? And then your net effect on the local economy is to make everyone so poor that they can't even afford to buy stuff at Walmart, then you close the Walmart and move on, right? Simple colonial extraction. No, instead, my idea, which seems so counterintuitive, is if your, employee, if your employees and customers and partners get wealthy by interacting with you, then you've got richer customers. And they're gonna spend more with you and they're gonna like you, right? And it's, it's, it's because of this, again, this bastardized understanding of capitalism that's promoted by these kind of West Coast libertarians that argue that business is some evolutionary battle of survival between fittest individuals. That's not the story of evolution. Read your Darwin. There's like two pages on competition. Darwin, page after page after page, is marveling at, oh my gosh, look at how species are collaborating and cooperating with one another for mutual survival. Read The Secret Life of Trees and you'll find out they, what they told me in middle school is wrong. The big tree does not shade the little tree so the little tree withers and the big tree gets to live. No, the big tree is sharing its nutrients with the little trees through a network of living mycelia in the soil, which is also alive. And then the little tree, when the big tree loses its leaves in the winter, the little tree shares the, its nutrients back up and the mushrooms take a service fee for the transaction. <laughs> you know? Right? Um, second is that there are no externalities. Yes. There's nothing external, there's nothing, none, right? Adam Smith, and, and I, I actually disagree on that one point about Adam Smith, I don't, he might not have been an environmentalist, but read that second book. Adam Smith talked about the three factors of production, land, labor, and capital. Land, land, labor, and capital. Land is the place. Right, that the labor is the people, capital is the money. All three deserve a place at the table. In our digital companies right now, the only one who has a seat at the table is the person who gave the money. Why? Well, because he put up the money. 
What about the town that put up its land? What about the people that put in their time and their, their lives to make this thing? What about the people who are impacted by the, by the company itself? Land, labor, and capital. If all three have a place at the table, you end up with, with a sustainable system. Three, in order to get to, this is what I found best, in order to get stuff through, call it an experiment. Right? You're not actually changing the economy. You're doing it's a promotional stunt. Right? So when I, was, I was trying to convince banks to have a less extractive policy of, of lending. So I, and I actually convinced one, a credit union to do this, where someone comes to you for, say, $100,000 to expand your pizzeria. Instead of giving them a $100,000 loan, give them a $50,000 loan and give them a little app that lets them raise the other $50,000 from the community. And you raise it by saying, okay, give me $100 now, and you get $120 of pizza at the new restaurant when it expands. So people are getting 20% return on their money, which is better than Smith Barney or someone is going to get you. And they've bought a stake in their community. And the 20% that they, the, the $100 that they've put in, instead of sticking it in a you know, Filipino smelting company or something, they've put $100 into their own community. They've made their main street better. They increase their property values. They get more tax base for their schools. And, and the pizzeria guy's going to love them for life. Um, four, bounded economics. Right, bounded economics is basically what the Teamsters did. When in 2007 they didn't know where to invest their retirement money, they got the bright idea, what if we invest money in building projects that are going to hire Teamsters? Right, and they go, is this going to be illegal? Is this wrong? So get it? So they're investing in projects, and then they're getting that same money back along with their investment. Then they went, well, what if we triple dip? What if we invest in housing projects for our retiring parents? So now they're actually building homes for their parents with their own money as an investment and getting paid a salary to do that. Right? That's Once you create a boundary condition, rather than the infinite scaling exponential insanity of generic markets, something, even if it's not local, it's, it's virtually local even, then you can get that kind of Dyson uh, spin effect and everything gets, gets happy. For me, my, my North Star is a superfluid economy, where the idea that profit and extraction are bad, when a, when a credit union gives a dividend to its members at the end of the year, that's an indication of its failure. Here's money that we didn't deploy. We just didn't know how, so we gotta give it back. Sorry, we'll try to do better next time. That's the way it should feel, because what we're trying to move to is an economy where anyone who needs capital at any moment has it available. Six, debt jubilee, just to raise debt, boom. Um, and <laughs> exactly, but it's like, wee, you know, what the hell? Um, it's, it's, you know, I love Astra Taylor's work where you basically, on pennies on the dollar, you buy distressed debt from those evil little debt companies. And they're like, wait a minute, you can't just erase that debt. Well, we just bought it so we can, fuck you. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and along that same token, I would say, I would say, you know, UBI, I'm, I'm, I'm warming back up to UBI. I loved UBI originally. I wrote a whole chapter on it in Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, and then I went to Uber, and I was talking about the economy, and then they said, oh, yeah, well, what about UBI? Um, as if UBI let us keep paying people below minimum wage, and I was like, oh, well, maybe there's some problems, but, um, but, but a, a basic income is like, duh, right? We're tearing down houses in California. We're burning food every week. We have more stuff. The only reason people can't have the stuff is because they don't have jobs. So Jobs are no longer to get work done. Jobs are to justify your piece of the economic pie. And that's an ass backwardsness. And that's because, again, because of, of corporatism and medieval times and our understanding that employment is the only path. Um, family businesses. 
That's number eight for me. Um, follow family business. Family businesses have better metrics along every single metric than shareholder-owned businesses. The only where, place that family businesses lag is during boom times, they don't grow as fast. But as far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing. And you know, and why do family businesses work that way? It's because people who run family businesses are not thinking, how much money can I extract from this business to give to my grandchildren? They're thinking, how can I create a business that my grandchildren will want to work in? Right? And they're thinking, my kids are going to school with the employees, so I've got to be nice to these people or they're going to beat up my kids. <laughs> right? um, nine platform cooperatives, we, we know what they are, and they're, they're I believe, the future of, of entrepreneurial work. Um, blockchain. I mean, blockchain, the, the, the whole idea is that, it's that blockchains are a way to make currency current see, as he says, a way of seeing the currents. There's a way of making things transparent. I'm not into getting everything on the ledger. You know, Jaron Lanier has a very well-meaning idea that we can, now that we have a blockchain and technology and sensors, we could put every single human activity of value and get it on the ledger somehow. We can record all this data that you're giving out so that you get paid for it. But it, as I see it, it leads to a reality where like, if I get out of bed on the left side rather than the right side today, that data is valuable to the Serta mattress company who's looking to track how people get in and out of bed. And then I can think, well, could I maximize my data production by getting out right then left and right then left and changing that pattern in order to keep getting, I mean, what is that? Right? As, as, as I see it, the object of the game is to get as much human activity as we can off the ledger, to stop understanding everything as monetary, as, as data. All right, so there's 10 things. I mean, and what's the alternative? Is exponential growth and death, right? Nothing in nature grows exponentially except cancer, which kills its host, right? We can't do that. It doesn't, it's not, it's not viable. It's not real. It's bad. Right? And I, I got in a, 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 as a digital person, I get in arguments with the singularity people all the time. Right? And I was on a panel with a really famous singularity person who was talking about how human beings have to accept our inevitable extinction. Right? That we are obsolete and we should pass the evolutionary torch to our silicon successors. And I said, no, no, but human beings are special. We can appreciate ambiguity. We can experience awe. We can be in the liminal spaces between things. We deserve a place in the digital future. And he said, oh, Rushkoff, you're just saying that because you're a human. Right? <laughs> as if it's hubris. And that's when I went, fine, you know, fine. I'm on team human, you know, guilty as charged, right? And, and the argument that I make now with team human is, you know, human beings are not the medium. We're not the noise. We are the signal. We are the message. And a digital environment doesn't have to be uh, 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 so repressive. What is digital? These are the digits. This is digital. Right? Digital means that human beings can, can get their hands back on things, that we can become uh, reconnected with the value that we create. You know, human beings still have the home field advantage on planet Earth. We do. The algorithms, they might own the internet, but we own this. The corporations may own that abstract economic sphere, but we own this. We have that advantage over computers and over capitalism. So, my message is that it's time to stop using technology to optimize human beings for an obsolete economy and to start using our digital sensibility to optimize the market for humans. Okay, thanks.
That same weekend in Bretton Woods, the night before I gave that talk, I managed to have a moment with an old acquaintance of mine, Charles Eisenstein. I had read his book, Sacred Economics, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and it shared a whole lot of the same views that I did at the time. That was about when I wrote Life, Inc. It was, it was really similar on the ideas that the biases of extractive central currency, as well as the need to develop alternative forms of exchange that don't carry the same kinds of burdens. You know, but where Life, Inc. was, was really historical, sacred economics was more spiritual and holistic. We even once did a panel together, and I think we both got the strong feeling that two white guys sitting in pontificating about economics may be the last thing the world needs to heal itself. But it was good to see Charles again a decade or so later, and as I spent time with him over the weekend, I started to see the ways that we can still contribute to the conversation without dominating it. And I got to see some of the bigger picture in his thinking, namely a new way of understanding the environmental crisis as he outlined in his book, Climate Change, A New Story. His main theme, we are not alone. Sound familiar? Yeah. Well, we simultaneously also got the idea to record a conversation for our mutual use. And here's the result. You know, I discovered Francis Bacon and the way that he talked about you know, science and the early industrial revolution, the early age of, of, of science and reason saying that, you know, science is the way that, that man can uh, uh, grab nature by the hair, you know, hold her down and subject her to our will. Right. Um, and, and you really looked at, at, at that and how that, that way of understanding the world or dissecting things um, kind of became our, our dominant religion as a society, and then informed everything from capitalism to, to everything. Yeah, I began talking about the reduction of the world to money, the monetization of everything, which follows a template set by science, which is the reduction of everything to number. And right. the, so there's like a metaphysical assumption underneath science that is not questioned or even questionable from within science, which is that everything is quantifiable. That goes back to Galileo, actually, mm. and this whole philosophical tradition that if it's real, you can measure it. And if it's not measurable, if it doesn't have a breadth and a weight and stuff like that, then it's just, you know, airy-fairy philosophizing. That it doesn't even exist. Right. I mean, in some ways, you know, and I've been trying that, but it's too big a subject to go back to Plato and Aristotle and see, you know, that Plato kind of looked at math and numbers as in this different universe, her matter is all messy and awful, and all we can do is kind of strive to be like to be like numbers. But the, the the science that we're talking about now is a science that says no, 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 matter does conform. It's just we've got to figure it out. But those are the, today. That's the kind of argument where people are saying, oh, CDs are better than records. You know, that uh -huh. digital music it's capturing everything, but it's not. It's like missing the stuff between the samples. Right, and the idea the ideology of of technology or of number really says that that's okay, we can solve it by increasing the data set by right, uh, higher resolution right, or more a higher sampling frequency and we'll capture the things that, that are missing and, and ultimately we'll be able to have a complete representation of reality that's as good as the real thing. What occurred to me is that 
is that financial analysis does the same thing. You, you, when you analyze a business, you break it down into different revenue streams, uh, different uh, costs, and you perform the same operation uh, on a, a firm, uh, on a spreadsheet, as you do on reality, um, on the material world that science does. And I wondered, what is actually the cause and effect? Like, it seems that science is the foundation of this way of thinking and this way of approaching the world, but it actually could be the other way around. That people got the idea, got like the natural intuition that the world is reducible to number because they were immer immersed. This is what was happening economically. And you probably know more about mm -hmm. this than I do actually, because you've studied a lot of this kind of history, but that, that the more they're immersed in a market economy, the more it seems as though the only important thing is that which can be measured financially. And I wonder if that conditioned them to uh, use that scientific lens. How much? Well, I mean, it kind of goes, it would go all the way back to, you know, stories of mana from heaven and all that, that once we got kind of out of RAM, out of the, out of the, the live moment and started worrying about how much have we stored, it's sort of, that's sort of where, I guess, the, the quantity starts to matter. You're supposed, at least according to the Bible, you're supposed to just trust that right. it's going to keep coming. You know, and human beings, we're like, we're the only species, well, at this point, that you try to, like, save up enough money by the time you're 65 so you can live out the rest of your life with no help from anybody else. Do, do, do you know anything about, like, the, the like monetization of medieval society? Yeah, kind of I mean, I do, but, you know, they didn't really, I mean, they didn't use money for... You know, for a while, they, uh -huh. they, all there were were those gold florins that no one could afford. Uh -huh. And then they got market monies after the Crusades. You know, and Bernard, you know, Leotard writes about that. They uh -huh. got market monies and grain-based currencies to trade, um, to trade at the market. But they were so valueless. You know, they would expire at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that they, um, I don't know that they thought about it in quite in that in that kind of quantized way. Uh -huh. that we're thinking of it. Because even their indebtedness to the vassal or the lord that they were working for wasn't, oh, I've got to create 90 bushels or, mm -hmm. or else. It wasn't, it wasn't quite as, as, as measured as that. Really, I would, I would argue it was when the quantifi quantification came in was with the invention of employment. You know, so they invented the chartered monopoly and you weren't allowed to be in business for yourself. You had to go work for His Majesty's Royal Shoe Company or uh -huh. jam manufacturer. And then instead of exchanging the value you created, now you're selling your human time. You're selling your hours. So they put the clock on the tower in the medieval village. Right. And I think that's when the number started to matter. That would have been a bit after medieval, right? I mean, that would have been well, late medieval. Century, maybe. Well, they were starting to, they were by the 12, it depends where, 12 and 1300s, they were, had those little oh, yeah. proto-factories. Uh -huh. You started to get the, the first charters. Lewis Mumford, Mumford wrote that uh, the key invention of the Industrial Revolution was not the steam engine, it was the clock. Because mm -hmm. that's what allows a factory to even operate. Right. And then, I mean, time, time is perfect because time is money. Time you can do, you know, it really is or for us. And that's how we got a culture of efficiency. It, you know, work over, work over time. But those at least could be quantized in a way that n almost nothing else could. How many hours went into that? That would, in a way, it would be the fulfillment of the scientific ambition to capture all of the world in number. So the utopian dream would then be to, with perfect understanding comes perfect control, 
so that you would be able to overcome suffering and death through the precise control of reality, including uploading your consciousness onto a computer and so forth. And you were not a fan of that dream. I don't think we call no. it a utopian dream. No, I mean, to me, it's it's really, I mean, that dream comes out of that same exponential growth of the market. And it's like, no, don't worry. We don't have to contain it. We'll keep going, keep expanding, keep evolving. You know, why are you trying to, you know, put on the brakes? Oh, you know, if we can, if we uh, supply enough money to Google or whoever, they're going to build a platform capable of, exactly, of, of, of cloning every part of your consciousness, you know, and Martine Rothblatt talks about that too, you know, mind clones, that mm -hmm. just once you've made a mind clone, then you have to, you're going to have to treat it ethically because it's, it may as well be you. I mean, still, it's not, from what I can tell, it's still not you. It's like, it's more like the transporter. They make another you. So you die, but you're some mirror copy of your consciousness goes on. But let's say uh, they're thinking that somehow that the, the emergent consciousness of you will then emerge in this perfect, you know, CD digital replica. It's not just dark, but it's, it's, I think it's stupid because it, it's a weird, it's another religion. It's another scientific religion, the kind of religion of Dawkins or somebody that says that consciousness and everything that we can know is an emergent phenomenon of complex matter. And when matter gets complex enough, then you get consciousness rather than there being some pre-existing soul or cause that set all this into motion. Like there is definitely something compelling about um, emergent phenomena in nonlinear systems. The, those systems definitely do take on a life of their own and take on qualities that you cannot reduce to any of the parts. Right. That you look at something like a coral reef and you say, oh, wow, look at all these beings and species came together and they're acting like a bigger right. thing. Right. Or even, yeah, or like, you know, a termite nest or something like right. that. So I think, but I think we could affirm both, like that on the one hand, a coral reef or a forest or the collective of all humanity or a termite nest is conscious in a way that the individual termites are not, that the individual corals are not, and so forth, that you and I are conscious in a way that none of ourselves are conscious. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that simpler systems and beings don't have a kind of consciousness, all the way down to what we consider inanimate objects. Rocks and things. Yeah. Right, right. Which, and because rocks are... Dynamic nonlinear. They don't talk. Right. Know? Well, they're also yeah. not nonlinear dynamic systems, at least not as obviously as right. we are. Um, that might mean that the, the consciousness of a tiny pebble is basically just a small version of the consciousness of a boulder in a way that's huh. different. You know, a, a single neuron is not a small version of the consciousness of a whole human being. It's a fundamentally different being. But to say, but to say that um, these simpler beings do not have any consciousness, that, I think, is an unjustified conceit. We don't know that. Right. And it ends up being a, a kind of a disrespectful way to move through the world, yeah. as if I'm the only conscious thing, or at least these other bipeds are the conscious ones, and nothing else is. You know, it's so much more fun, if not effective, to think of yourself as part of this, this bigger system. 
People don't want to do that either, though. So then, you know, you, you talk about this a lot in your in your work that 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 this darker phase could be akin to the ego of a child developing that it needs to separate from its mother and experience itself as as yeah. something before it then discovers the other people and becomes intimate again. Mm-hmm. You know, which is kind of a happy way to look at where we're at as a civilization. I mean, sometimes, I, and I noticed they correspond to a different like emotional state. Mm-hmm. So sometimes. You know, I could be in a different, in a uh, really negative emotional state, and all the stuff about the initiation of the human species and and a more beautiful world that just all seems like a delusion. And like, there's part of me is like, you know, Charles, we're doomed. None of this, none of these mystical experiences and synchronicities are anything. They're they're just uh, your own delusions. And, like there's definitely like that whole belief system. It's not just an intellectual construct. It's an entire state of being. And then something totally unrelated to my intellect might happen and it'll shift me. It's like it almost shifts me into a different reality in which it's really clear that all of this journey of separation has happened for a reason, that it's part of a larger process, that this, these are the dynamics of transformation not that we'll necessarily, not that we're guaranteed to transform, but that this is the pathway. Uh, these are these are you know universal dynamics. So both live inside of me. Yeah, I know. I go back and forth myself. We just really screwed this up, you know. And that that the way the world works, for whatever reason, is there was this really virulent, dominant you know, group of homo sapiens who had, you know, what Native Americans called wetico, you know, the disease. disease, And we just started clobbering everything. And those who clobber, you know, win. You know, I I hate to say it. You know, it's like when those who clobber win, you end up with a Trump in, in office and you get a whole range of, you know, angry white people saying, look, we won. We won, you know, might makes right, and they got better. If you have a civilization that's going to dedicate itself to understanding astronomy and the heavens and consciousness, and you have another civilization that's going to figure out how do we kill most effectively, who's going to win that? You know, (laughs) so it's not a pretty picture. Although complicating that is that maybe some of the same civilizational DNA that brings us to clobber is the same DNA that brings us to try to conquer the universe within our intellectual understanding. So there's maybe you know many different expressions of the same fundamental um, way of being. That, like when I look at it that way, I can't say that it's all bad or all good. Just kind of that that it is. Um, and adding to that that perception is is. When I learned that that civilization and all that it carries arose independently in many places, and everywhere that that, that happened, kind of the same stuff would happen: mm. social classes, money, slavery, patriarchy, uh, ecocide. Like you know, it happened in Mesopotamia, happened in Egypt, happened in China, happened in India, happened in South America, happened in North America. They clear cut their forests. We yeah. lost big mammals. Women got right abused. Right. So I'm like, if it's kind of inevitable, and then also, yeah, and then inevitable, like tracing it back to, 
not a sudden bad idea called whatever agriculture. Yeah. But but that agriculture didn't even arise as a, as a single right. innovation, but it you know emerged built on itself slowly. First following the herds and then protecting the herds. You know, first going to where the the grain was in abundance and then taking care of the grain and eventually becoming sedentary. Like this is baked into the cake. So if we try to blame it on evil, we're missing a big part of the story. And then going to to war against evil, fighting a symptom, rather than really trying to understand the cause. Right. So just like long story short, like, you know, maybe astronomy and symphony orchestras and like all of the accomplishments of civilization couldn't have happened any other way but through a dominator paradigm that had to play itself out and that I think is now has played itself out or has or we're at a, a crucial juncture where we could choose a different story or we could maybe continue this one until we live in the Ray Kurzweil world of where everything has been reduced to data and everybody is in this concrete digital world and wondering why it hurts so much just to exist. You, they would. I mean, and there's but people I've spoken, you know, there's the, the sort of the Howard Blooms and, and others are kind of champions of what they're considering enlightened capitalism that say the only way out is through. And yes, we, you know, invest in Monsanto and have them figure out how to grow alfalfa on a rock or, you know, mushrooms yeah. on the, on the Hydroponic ocean. factories. Exactly. Like so much food is not even grown in soil now. Right. Yeah. That you go, you go all the way through. But there's something that feels, and I don't think it's just nostalgic. There's some, that, that, or I don't have to get into Baudrillard and postmodernism to talk about this disconnection from the real isn't just an academic, oh, so now we're going to be in a matrix. It's like there's real people crushed under the, the wheels of this machine. There's kids going into the mines to get their air earth metals to make the battery for my friggin', you know, mm -hmm. Tesla or something. So it's not like everybody gets to come to this virtual paradise. Well, but, and, and yeah, but still... Like to, and I'm not saying that this is your main critique of it, but if you advance that as a primary critique, then you're also implying that if only everybody could come, then it would be okay. Right. Which I don't even think. But yeah. I don't. But I don't think it's possible. I don't think there is a. But see, that's what the whole ideology is about the UN Sustainability Goals, you know, and lifting everybody out of poverty and developing the whole world. It's basically saying that that we're going to try to make the whole world like a uh, affluent. Western person. Exactly. Developing nation. Developing to what? Developing yeah. to this? Is this what we want? Like even the right. people who it's supposed to be working for. Like I, I read some article in Fortune magazine about the misery of the like of top executives. Like these are the these are people if anybody They're the winners. Yeah, they're the winners. And if anybody should be happy, it should be them. But they're not happy. They can't they don't feel like they belong in the world. They don't have strong community connections. Their children are, you know, getting addicted to things and, and are getting depressed. Like, it's not even working for the winners. And to compensate for that, yeah, maybe they can get a private jet and a yacht. No, but they're gaming out. I mean, that was that big article I wrote that kind of launched this, this whole thing for me. It was about these billionaires I met who are, you know, plotting for the apocalypse. 
But they asked, you know, they were asking me questions about whether to go to New Zealand or Alaska and how to maintain control of their security force after their money's worthless. So they're gaming out these kind of walking dead scenarios. And if these are the richest, most powerful, supposedly happiest people in the world spending 20% of their money and time. They're living in anxiety. That's called anxiety. Yeah. Like thinking about what is a few, oh my God, it's going to be terrible. What do I do? How do I prevent, how do I protect myself from the future? That's not wealth. Rich is that you feel at home here. You feel like you belong, that the world is good to you and you're, and you can be good to the world. Right. Yeah. Right. Then there's those studies that show once you reach, I forgot what, $18,000, $28,000 a year or something, that, that yeah. that's about maxes out the amount that right. money can make you happy. Right. Because it would mean, I mean, if instead of creating, and this is what I was thinking to go into next, it's kind of my, my career maybe even, is what about creating uh, uh, like fiction, uh, comic books and movies and TV shows that make a more modest life aspirational. Mm-hmm. Like you create these fu- visions of a future that aren't this kind of Star Trek future where everybody's got replicator stuff, but super simple kind of, you know, world made by hand, mm-hmm. a gentle, modest life and show people being happy at, at right. that. Yeah, and where like the heroes and the villains aren't like these super competent superhumans. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, so it's, it's just a different, I mean, would those shows, you know, instead of whatever, you know, when, when America was making the world's media instead of, you know, Miami Vice with fast cars or Baywatch or, you know, if instead of yeah. those, if they are, uh, I mean, not like not the you Waltons know, or something, but. But, you know, part of that could, could actually answer the, the question that those rich people are asking you. Should it go to New Zealand or Alaska? Because, you know, you, and, and you actually hinted at it there. They're, how do I control my security force? What I, what I like to say about that is that unless your personality and skill set is suited to be a warlord, then this is not actually a viable future. So the, right. the, the most viable, the best security you could get for like times of apocalypse and breakdown would be to give all your wealth away as fast as you can right now so that you will have benefited so many people that when things get chaotic, that they'll take care of you. That the best security is to give it all away. No, definitely. No, when I wrote the, the book on digital economics, like the big rule I had to come up with, you know, was well, the first rule was make them rich. Make your customers rich, make your suppliers rich, make everyone in your marketplace wealthy. Then they'll have a lot of money to spend with you and they'll like you. And if things get bad for you, they're going to take care of you because you made them rich. Uh And it's like, but that's so hard for people to get. There's enough houses. There's so many houses. They're they're tearing down houses in California as we speak. So because they're in foreclosure, they want to keep market value high. U.S. Department of Agriculture firms food. At the same time that there's a housing shortage, they're also tearing down houses. Right. At the same time as there's like one in seven people hungry in this country, they're burning food. Burning food. And it's because why can't you have the food? Well, because you don't have a job, right? right. So we're going to now invent a piece of plastic that nobody needs for you to make so you can have a job. And we're going to dig more crap out of the ground and give, make people use something and then use media to convince them to buy this thing that they don't need that's just going to separate them from other people. You know, as long as you have an interest-bearing debt-based system where the only money you get is through employment, then then something like you have to find something to occupy people to produce things that if no one needs it, you have to find some way for those things to be consumed. Um, Warfare would be one way to consume things um, that are beyond anybody's need, destroy things and rebuild them again. 
It and seems like war is the, really the only other place we can go. Because what we've done now, and, and this is why I think this kind of, com- we're at this, you know, Bretton Woods conference where, as I experience it, the sort of the, the uber lords of finance realize that this isn't working. And they're finally <laughs> turning to, <laughs> to other solutions. I mean, in, in a well-meaning way. But, but what, the reason why they're here, the reason why, they, is because their colonization machine has been turned on themselves. In other words, we colonized and colonized and colonized brown people, colonized the planet. And finally, you know, uh, Vannevar Bush goes to Eisenhower with a computer and says, this will save the economy. You don't need to colonize any more other countries. They all push back. Now you can colonize human consciousness. So we've colonized ourselves between, you know, whatever, WhatsApp and Facebook. And now people are going, wait a minute. So maybe it took that, you know, that we're doing, you know, Wetico on our on ourselves, we're cannibalizing. So colonization basically meaning when you turn somebody into a source of raw materials and labor and a market for consumption of finished goods. And so as it takes fewer and fewer people to produce those finished goods, more and more people become among the colonized. It's funny, I'll do talks for like whatever, wealthy people or business people, supposedly about their business. And because I'm talking digital, always the Q&A ends up being about their own kids. What should I do with my kids doing playing Fortnite too much? You know, and it's like, dude, this is a real estate conference. I'm supposed to be talking about, you know, and you're asking, or, or my daughter is Snapchatting with her friends and she's all addicted to streaking. And so they see that the system that they've been working for is now turned on themselves. Yeah. You know, and that's why. But that in some ways, at least it's like, OK, now, you know. You know, you know, and this is light compared to what we did to other people. You know, we're not. But it's another version of it. You know, the psychological misery that people suffer is so severe that people commit suicide from it. I mean, you know, right. just because nothing visibly painful is happening to their bodies doesn't mean that they're not suffering uh, as much in their suburban McMansions as people are suffering in slums in Nairobi. Um, right. It's just yeah. it's much harder on the surface to feel bad. For right. the child, it looks like it's their fault. Yeah, you know, a rich why, kid why in a rich yeah, house right. complaining about stuff, cutting and taking yeah. narcotics. Cutting themselves. I mean, can you imagine how bad does it have to hurt to cut yourself? I look at the legalization of pot as kind of capitalism's not surrender, but almost like the, to throw a bone. It's like, oh, look, these people are getting really upset. They're starting extinction rebellion, and they're really coming out just. Give them pot, you know, let them have pot. Maybe that'll quiet them down for a couple of well, decades. Well, actually, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. It reminds me of Engels' quip. Right. The capitalists will sell you the noose, you know, with which to hang himself. The logic of capitalism says, well, of course, because if, I'm, if I have this market opportunity and I've got the noose here, you know, and, and you'll buy it and no one else will buy it and or I'm going to sell it for cheaper than you're going to sell it, the, the economic logic says, well, yeah, I'll do it. And we kind of see that happening. And in this case, I mean, that's, you know, you can use that as a metaphor for environmental destruction. Like, I think that legalization of pot is actually um, undermining, potentially undermining capitalism. It doesn't feed the state of being and the mindset that feeds capitalism. It famously makes people unmotivated. But unmotivated to do what? Unmotivated to play Frisbee? No. Unmotivated to create art, play music? No. Unmotivated to go to work, input data, work on it. Like, yeah. I look at it as I think it's going to backfire on the people who created the policies for it. I do worry if it's more of a, of a, of a SOMA, 
though, uh -huh. you know. Oh, Tony, you were talking about universal basic income, too. I mean, I guess universal basic income at best is a, a, a transition to something else. I think it's a transition to gift economy. Uh, and I think that the goal of universal basic income should be that it gets smaller and smaller as people reclaim more of life uh, for community and for their own sovereignty so that you don't need to meet all of your needs with money anymore. So the amount, like in a healthy society, you wouldn't need to spend money on vegetables most of the time because people are having gardens, you're growing it for yourself, your neighbors. Uh, you wouldn't have to spend money on entertainment as much because people are playing more. Right. You wouldn't have to spend money on daycare because kids are running around in packs. Um, you wouldn't have to spend money on gigantic houses because you have more public space. In somewhere like Bali or where people just play music for each other. You're never a professional musician. In our society, if you're just playing music, it's like, well, what, if you sold any records? If you, done, if you haven't made it, whatever right. that means, then it's not real. So UBI would support you to not have to do that. But could we get that through our heads that then we don't have? In other words, would we still feel ourselves as successful if we're playing music for people in our lives well, that's and why, love it. Yeah, I mean, that's why it only makes sense as part of other, other trends and other rising values. Because a lot of people are moving in that direction anyway, even without support of universal basic income. They're not hanging their identity nearly as much on success as defined by the system, hmm. by money, by like prestigious positions and things like that. So, so I think that the values that would make universal basic income work are already emerging. Right, but there's this well-meaning techno-solutionist drive. I mean, whether I'm talking to, you know, Jaron Lanier about his kind of vision of the blockchain or even some of the humane technology people that, well, all we really need to do is to create a blockchain that takes into account all of the casual value that people create right. for each other. Measure isn't working, so extend it. Extend it, exactly. Yeah. So like if I get out of bed on the right side this morning, that piece of data might be valuable to the Serta mattress company to know why did I get out on the right, right rather than the left. So then I'm going to start optimizing my behavior to create valuable data for this blockchain that's now feeding me back. Right. And it seems like that's insane. I mean, I would rather, rather than getting all that informal data on the books, like, I know it's a, it's valuable that a mother potty trained her child. Do we want to get that on the blockchain or do we want to get more other stuff off the blockchain? I would like to see what happens to the whole mindset of humane tech when it accepts that the solution and the, the, the goal is not necessarily to make everything into the world of data. Uh, because when you let go of that ideology of a better world through data, then you can ask questions that are unavailable from that mindset, such as what is the proper domain of quantified, you know, data-mediated technologies? And what is not the proper domain of them? What do we want to reclaim from the world of quantity? And mm. what do we want to keep in that world and do better, do it more efficiently? Like that's the kind of question I think we should be asking, not how do we bring everything into the, into the data set, onto the blockchain. I got in the biggest trouble I got into ever, and it's not that much trouble, was I wrote an op-ed for the Times when they were doing the Jewish census, like the Jewish whatever it is, the, the American Jewish Committee, ever since World War II, every like 12 years, they count all the Jews in the world. 
She's like, how many? How many we got? How are we doing? And I was like, I wrote this piece saying, stop judging Judaism by the numbers. The success of Judaism is not how many people are affiliated at synagogues. Mm -hmm. It's how Jewish is the world? How many people are taking Sabbath? You know, how many people are, are you know, enacting social justice? You know, looking at sort of more of a kind of a Thomas Cahill gift of the Jews idea. Uh -huh. You know, how much, how much civilization? How much law is there? How much, you know, and, and they just, boy, I hated that. I blacklisted. I got in so much trouble. But it was really that. And I look back in Talmud. There's even a law in Talmud. You're not allowed to count people. Wow. So it's interesting. But it goes back to all the stuff that you're saying that once you're trying to, you know, quantify reality, it's useful to have like latitude and longitude lines on the ocean so you can right. navigate. But then once you mistake the latitude and longitude lines for the ocean, right. you're done, you're sunk, right? right? And that's essentially what's happened with the money economy, mistaking GDP for the good and having a system that maximizes GDP that has become so unmoored from the value that it was supposed to, that originally represented, that it produces effects that are totally contrary to any good of humans or nature. I mean, the critique of this conversation that I can already hear uh, from, from listeners is, well, this is a privileged conversation. In other words, that, that, well, you have the luxury of saying you don't want to care about metrics and all that. I got, a, you know, the, I got bills and my <laughs> numbers aren't adding up. I got education debt that I can't pay. That they're they're being being crushed under the pressure of these numbers. They don't have the luxury of saying, "I'm going to transcend this metrical view of reality." So, if if you're conditioned to see as inevitable the progressive conversion of the world into money, then of course you want some of it to go to you. Uh, and and I think that that's why we need to invite people into a deeper uh, consideration of. Why do you need money? Why do you have these crushing bills? Or I, I have this conversation sometimes speaking with people from third world countries. And they're like, you know, don't tell us that we shouldn't develop the way that you've developed. Don't try to deny us right. the benefits of development. We want development. Then the question is, what are the conditions of this wanting? So if you take away traditional subsistence, if you take away traditional meaning making and culture, then in that vacuum, of course, they're going to need some substitute. Of course, they're going to want to be able to purchase the food that they no longer can, can source themselves. So once, once you establish that base condition as, as an assumption and unchangeable, then there's only one direction to go. So like in our society, once you establish that a viable livelihood depends on, on a growing economy, and a growing commodification of the whole uh -huh. world, then of course you have to do that well. And if you say, well, let's stop doing that, it's gonna seem heartless because you know, I need those extra, I need a job. You know, right. Like we need higher consumption so that I can have a job. That's why we have to expand the conversation beyond the terms that it's usually framed in and say, okay, well, this goes back to universal basic income you know, and, and negative interest and the stuff I talk about. Like these assumptions that the only way for there to be more jobs is for there to be economic growth. That depends on conditions that we take for granted that must be questioned and can be questioned.
Right. These underlying assumptions that the founders of companies in Silicon Valley are not the ones questioning those underlying assumptions. You know, they're the ones listening to the, the investment class, the, the VC, and saying, yeah. oh, this is how it's done. And I feel like it's a, what, what I want to do is almost go to engineering schools and, and business schools and economics departments and infuse them with, the, with, you know, with this mindset rather than just, you know, the kind of libertarian one that's been funded. I mean, I, I do think that uh, a lot of uh, technology company founders and stuff, they do actually think outside the box. Um, in, they, they question uh, assumptions that other people hold in one domain. And that's why they're so successful. They do something that right. no one else has thought of They're disruptive doing. in this domain, right. but they're right. not disruptive of the underlying architecture of, of right. capitalism. Right. But there is definitely something to learn, some you know, questioning of established reality mm-hmm. that, they, that they do that can, that can be useful. And, and, and if it can only be applied to other domains, wow. I mean, on, on the one hand, I could say, oh, well, they're not ready or something like that. But on another hand, it's like there is kind of an interfering force that uh, is preserving their paradigm, their world story, um, because maybe it's not reached its culmination yet. They're, it's like being protected still. I get that, but I feel like you know, if, if they are not ready, then instead of change through renaissance, we're gonna have to do change through revolution. Well, thank you, thanks for having this conversation with me. Thanks for listening to Team Human. Our guest today was the author of Climate Change, a new story, Charles Eisenstein. You can find out more about his work at charleseisenstein.org or at teamhuman.fm, where you can also support this show. And a special shout out to our Patreon subscribers, Arvid Christina, Barry Muldray, Audrey Penvin, Carla Ganis, and Carlos Flores. Without you, there would be no us. You can find my articles based on my monologues posted at Medium, where I'll also be syndicating the entirety of my book, Team Human, over the coming months. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Our producer is Josh Chapdelaine. Our engineer is Luke Robert Mason. Our community manager is Michael Bass. Our funding, all of it, comes from you listeners. Don't forget, the International Rebellion to Tell the Truth About Climate Change on October 7th worldwide. You can find out more at teamhuman.fm slash xr. Thanks for being on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.